0: Reading is taken from page 1171, 1171 in the Church Bibles. This is Galatians chapter 5 from verse 7. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, You are not under the law. Now the acts of the spirit, uh, sorry the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sorry, I'll say that again. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. I'm just gonna read on just the next few verses, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is the Word of God. Good morning.
1: So this is the passage that we've been asked to uh, (coughs) consider this morning from this book that we're going through. Those of you who are visitors, um, we're working our way through this letter of Paul to the Galatians Sunday morning on Sunday mornings. Well, preparing (coughs) for this morning, I found myself recalling an experience that happened uh, to me several years ago. I was leading a holiday group in North Wales, and on one of the days we were there, I decided to take the group and climb some of you, uh, Some of you know it there in North Wales, one of the highest peaks in North Wales. Well, we set off, I recall, in pretty decent weather, but as we climbed, the weather turned, I was going to say very Welsh, but um, <laughs> my, my apologies uh, to our friends. But the mists did close in. Uh, the, uh, the drizzle descended and the visibility definitely lessened. Well, I was navigating by map and compass. It was the days before View Ranger and, and so on. And I recall we came to a division or a junction in the paths. And there we met two men. Very assured, very persuasive, very convincing. The kind of men who know it all. You've met. Some of them ladies, I'm sure, (laughs) say no more. Well, they pointed us in one direction as very definitely the path to take to the summit. Some of my group, I recall even now could, were taken in, really, by the persuasive confidence of these two men. I, however, was persuaded that my map and my compass told me something very different. Well, I was the leader of the group, I took responsibility, and I called the group to follow me on the path that was contrary to the route that these two self-appointed mountain guides had told us to take the outcome you may be interested in well i'm relieved to tell you that i was right <laughs> thanks to map and compass we reached the summit though i'm not absolutely sure the the visibility was quite as great as that uh, as that picture Well, look, I thought of that experience from several years ago as I came to this passage in Galatians 5. Because what happened to us on Caderidris is a picture of what's going on here in the churches of Galatia in what is now modern Italy. As we've noticed in this series, Paul is facing head-on the really menacing issue of certain persuasive, very assured, very convincing Jewish Christians who are confronting the Christians in these churches with a different route to salvation than that that Paul had been preaching. Effectively, uh, to quote his word in chapter 1 and verse 6, effectively to accept a different gospel. Or verse 7 in our passage makes it very clear. You, Paul says, were running a good race. Or to use our imagery, you were making good progress on the climb. Who cut in to keep you from obeying the truth? And if you've been here on Sunday mornings, you'll know by now what that other route or path was all about. It was to do with add-ons, things that you need to do or ritual that you needed to observe or laws and regulations that you needed to keep in order to be right with God, in order to be saved, add-ons. Whereas the path that Paul takes us on has no such add-ons. In fact, he says clearly, time and time again, our salvation is entirely down to God's initiative and action. You and I, if we are Christian believers this morning, are saved by grace alone the undeserved, unmerited favour of God through alone the sacrificial work of Christ on the cross and his risen power. Now I want to get fairly quickly to verse 11, so let me just give a few headings relating to these early verses in our passage from verse 7 to 10. The first point is this, that we know that these messengers of an add-on gospel were very busy around these early Christian communities. Not just here in the Galatian communities. For example, we know from Paul's letters of the church in Philippi, in northern Greece, sort of across the Aegean Sea, from these Galatian communities. These these Heresy missionaries, if you like, were busy there. Philippians 3.2. Watch out, Paul says to them, for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, circumcision. The same people were infiltrating the church there in northern Greece as well. Secondly, Paul warns the Galatians, and my friends, he warns us, That false views, heresy, can very, very quickly get hold of the allegiance of gullible people. In verse 9, he quotes a proverb. Look, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. And Christian history, even recent history, is littered with fads and wacky teaching that have led many, many people astray. So thirdly, Paul, with authority and with conviction, assures them, look in verse 8, that such teaching doesn't come from the God of truth. In this letter, as in elsewhere, Paul is really concerned about this issue of truth. Back in chapter 2 and verse 5 and verse 14, he speaks about the truth of the gospel really concerned that his readers and us understand that what we are talking about here is true truth, is God's truth. And here in chapter 1 and verse 12, he says that this gospel, his gospel, came by revelation from God. It's God's truth. And alone, God is to be trusted for it. And we are called, my friends, To test everything by that truth which we believe has been embedded in the Bible, in God's Word. So the frequent call of the New Testament is to watch out. Be on your guard. Search the Scriptures to test the truth of any claim that you're exposed to. Don't be taken in by the latest fad or the most charismatic, persuasive personality. And then fourthly, Paul is in no doubt that those who undermine the truth and and authority of the gospel, the true gospel, will be brought to account. In verse 10, he says here, they will have to pay the penalty. But I want us to get quickly to Verse 11, and try and get hold of Paul's argument here. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been abolished. Well, what's going on here? What's his point? Paul is clearly incandescent with righteous anger in this letter Why so stirred in his spirit? What does he mean by the offense of the cross? Why is the death of Jesus, my friends, that is so precious and significant to we who are Christians, why is it so offensive to our contemporaries as it was then? Well, let me suggest a couple of headings as we move on that you can go away and think about. The first is this, the cross challenges our pride. We've seen over these weeks that the true gospel, the truth that I've already said Paul is so passionate about, the true gospel that has been commissioned, that he's been commissioned by the Lord to preach is that it is in Christ alone that salvation is secured. Paul says it is the Lord Jesus who carried the guilt of our arrogant rebellion against God and our sin. He mentions it here in this letter on various occasions, chapter 1 and verse 4. Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. And chapter 3 and verse 13. Christ redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. Do you see his point? God alone, in great love and at huge cost through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, he alone has brought about our salvation. That's Paul's gospel in a nutshell. But do you begin to see how that good news actually undermines and challenges the pride that we might have in that route to salvation, that path that we instinctively by nature want to take to gain salvation, the add-ons. For these Jewish Christians, it was about meriting or earning God's favour by submitting to the old ritual, the laws, and the Jewish regulations. But listen for us. For us too, Paul's gospel totally undermines the proud confidence that we have, maybe in our respectability, our good works, our achievements, our tireless effort, or anything that we think in some way just helps to earn and merit our salvation. God looking favorably upon us. Well, just hear what he says again, a little earlier in the chapter, in verse 4. You who are trying to be justified by the law, or for us good works, or merit, or achievement, you have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. My friends, you've taken the wrong path. You've been persuaded to go down the wrong route if you think that by your add-ons, by your good works, achievement, your respectability, your decency, you make any impression upon the holy righteousness and glory of God. We foolishly, very foolishly underestimate the perfection and purity that our holy and awesome God requires from those who would draw near to him. If you and I think proudly that we can merit or earn or deserve God's salvation, it's as if, uh, a simple illustration, it's as if we climb the trundle and plant a flag proudly to say that we've reached the summit of moral achievement, only to be told that it's actually the summit of Everest (laughs) that is the real goal. Well, I reckon that would deflate your pride and mine, wouldn't it? So Paul says, look, the cross where Jesus died for us that proclaims that we are utterly dependent on the undeserved grace of God for our salvation, that offends our pride. The pride that refuses to go down on its knees and cry out, God, please be merciful to me, a sinner. I plead nothing. I plead nothing. But the cross of Jesus, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross, I cling. And in verse 11, he puts it round the other way, look. If in fact we can be saved, well, by circumcision and Jewish regulations in his day, or good works and moral achievement in our day, if we can be saved by earning them, then the offence of the cross has been abolished. It doesn't challenge our proud self-reliance, or as he puts it in chapter 2 and verse 21. If righteousness could be gained through the law by earning it, then Christ died for nothing. There's no point in the cross of Jesus and what he did if you and I can earn our salvation and favour with God. But here's the second thing, the cross attracts persecution. Verse 11 he says, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Today is I think in the church calendar, the international day of prayer for the persecuted church. So it's quite good isn't it to be brought to this point this morning. The reason that Paul says that he's being hounded and persecuted by so many is precisely because the total moral and uh, the total moral and spiritual poverty that is ours before a holy and righteous God, and because that was offensive to his contemporaries and is certainly offensive to ours people will react against you with proud hostility if you name them helpless sinners, wholly dependent for salvation on that free, undeserved, unmerited grace and mercy of God that we rejoice in, that we've sung about and that we proclaim. You know, this message of Jesus laying down his life in place of sinners hasn't been popular through the centuries. And the preacher or the plain honest witness of any Christian, you or anyone else, will attract hostility and even persecution. It will. If you are true to this gospel and name it as it is, it will bring a response of hostility because it offends people's pride. And we who preach, and all of us as we witness, must beware of simply telling our hearers what they want to hear just to be popular, rather than like the apostle having the courage to speak the truth. Later on in the letter, in chapter 6 and verse 12, he speaks of those who avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, my friends, we're at the juncture of the two paths. What about you? What about me? Here's the point where we can either say that we've been persuaded, we've been taken in by those who say that when we stand before God on the day of judgment, we'll be able to say, well, I was nice, I was kind, I was a decent sort of person, I was respectable, a good citizen. Well, my friend, if you think that, you've gone the wrong route. You've been taken in by the wrong voices. But listen, if you really want to reach the summit, know that experience of God saving mercy and blessing upon you. You take the route that the Apostle Paul sets before us here, trusting wholly and completely and entirely, in Christ crucified for our sins, and risen for our justification. But I want to move on to verse 13, because as we do so, Paul wants to get across to these Galatian Christians, and, uh, and us, a further really really important truth. Back to Idris for a moment. We weren't much further on from that earlier point of decision, the parting of the ways, when one of my group, I recall, came up to me and said that he wanted to leave the path I was leading them on and do his own thing and find his own way up the mountain. Well, as a responsible leader, I cautioned him that it was risky and unadvisable to go off the path, to go off-piste. I explained that I had the map and compass, but he insisted. A good man, he knew what he was doing. Well, I told him he was free to make his choice. Well, he went... But in the event, you ladies will perhaps be amused to know, he got himself in a whole heap of trouble. This arrogant man got himself in a whole heap of trouble, up scree slopes and along dead-end tracks. And I have to say to you, he never made it to the summit. We met him on our way down. Now look, Paul turns here at verse 13 onwards to this very issue of freedom. And his point is that your freedom now as a Christian from having to earn and work hard for your salvation, that freedom can in fact be used in one of two choices as you continue on the Christian journey, the climb. On the one hand... You can use your freedom to commit wholeheartedly to following Jesus as Lord of your life. Or as Paul puts it here in verse 16, living by the Spirit. The word is peripateo. It's the Greek word for walking. Walking as the Spirit, by the Spirit. In other words, following the prompting and the leading of the Holy Spirit who is in your life as a Christian believer. That's the promise. The Holy Spirit indwells us as Christian believers. Why, I wonder, does Paul speak of keeping in step with the Spirit in verse 25 and being led by the Spirit in verse 18 and not about following the Lord Jesus as our leader? Well, surely the answer is that the Holy Spirit makes real in your life, in my life, the wonderful and challenging presence of Jesus step by step on the Christian journey. 24-7, the Holy Spirit makes real the presence of Jesus. And he does that, the Holy Spirit prompts through our consciences. And leads and guides and teaches us through again the Bible. Psalm 119, 105 came to my mind. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Well, it's God the Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of Scripture and who makes that happen in your life. If you are led by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit day by day, But listen, on the other hand, you can use your freedom to go off the path from following the Lord. Choosing to revert to the arrogance and self-centeredness and willfulness of the old nature. In verse 16, gratifying, Paul says, the desires of the flesh. When he speaks about the flesh, he doesn't mean this, the the body. That's created by God and is good. Paul speaks, when he uses the term the flesh, of the old nature, the old sinful nature. So look, Paul is pretty blunt here. In verse 16, there's a stark two-way choice, isn't there? For we Christians... Every morning as you launch out into a new day, you set out into another day of living the Christian life as disciples of Jesus. Listen to what he says. I say live, walk by the Spirit under the prompting and guidance of the Spirit's teaching. Live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not know what, you do not do what you want. My friends, we are a living civil war, you and I, as Christian disciples. So how do you know whether you're following the Spirit, or being led, and being led by the Lord... Or if you've gone off piste, if you've gone off the path and selfishly gone your own way up the scree slopes. Well, look, Paul tells us here, thankfully, Paul tells us the test is very practical. What sort of life am I living? What sort of What's the quality of my lifestyle and my character? And it's to this very practical matter that Paul now turns next week, Uh, Ellen will be focusing on the character and lifestyle of the Christian who does have eyes fixed on following the Lord Jesus and is indeed keeping in step with the Spirit. But this morning, we must, as we close, just quickly face honestly and humbly Paul's warning about turning from following the Lord Jesus. In rebellious self-will... How do we know we are off the path? How do we know? How does the conscience prompt that we've taken our eyes off the leader? Well, verse 19 to 21, look, spells out some, not all, I have to say to you, of the marks of the sinful nature. And I've just come up with these three headings that may just help us to remember them as we go away. The first is this, look. In verse 19, what I've called undisciplined appetites. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. Later in verse 21, drunkenness and orgies. Well, any, any appetite that means for us, any appetite or passion or desire that is out of control in your life and greedily indulged. Secondly, look, unworthy allegiances, idolatry and witchcraft any loyalty in other words that deflects you from absolute primary loyalty to Jesus as Lord anything that takes that devotion away from the Lord Jesus who is entitled to be Lord of absolutely every aspect of your life and then thirdly, look, unloving relationships. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy. Any signs of the self-centeredness that works against the love of which he speaks here, we haven't time to look into, but maybe Ellen will pick it up in that great uh, uh, a few verses later. I, I, I don't know about you, I found myself, as I worked at this, rebuking myself as I worked at it. Because I found it very easy to be smug about all this. Maybe some of these marks of the flesh, the old sinful nature, don't tempt me as they did these Christians in the Galatian churches. Many of them coming out of a pagan culture. I don't know that orgies or debauchery or witchcraft are the things that really tempt me. But listen, my friends, the culture that I live in and the culture that you live in bombards us daily with temptations to indulge the old sinful nature. That's where the civil war goes on. You're being called to walk, keeping in step with the Spirit through His Word. Being prompted in conscience. But all the time, my friends, do you not know it as I do? That battle going on, the desires of the old sinful nature in all sorts of forms and guises. And the challenge of God's truth here through the Apostle Paul, look, is day after day on the journey. Keep your eyes, my friends, fixed on following Jesus as Lord. Responding to the prompting through conscience, the guiding, teaching, leading through the Word of God. Later on, Paul writes to um, young Timothy, a young leader in the early Christian church. And he says this that I think is a good summary of some of the things we've been looking at. Titus 2 and verse 11. The grace of God that has offered salvation to all, Paul says, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age. My friends, are there areas in your life on the Christian journey, on the upward climb, where maybe this morning, in the face of God's Word, you have to say no to? Things in your lifestyle, things that are priorities that should be the Lord's, that you need to say no to, in order that you might not go down the wrong route or up the scree slope, but that you might end in that what he calls here, the kingdom of God, that ultimate reign and rule of God to which by his grace and mercy he's bringing us. Amen.